Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. This is Robert Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick, and it's Monday, so it's time for us to read back a few of the messages that you have sent in over the past week or so. Uh, Rob, do you mind if I jump right in with this message in response to our episodes on the invention of the chainsaw? Go for it. All right, this comes from Chris. Chris says, Hi, Joe and Robert. Longtime listener, first time emailer. I'm currently listening to your podcast on the chainsaw and just thought I'd let you know a place where these appear unchained or with the bar removed completely in sporting culture. If you watch pretty much any downhill mountain bike race, there will be numerous crowd members wielding chainsaws as a way to cheer on the riders. I believe there are a couple of different reasons behind this. The first and most obvious is that a lot of mountain biking facilities are built in forest plantations that are periodically harvested, so it's quite common to hear chainsaws in the background to riding. The second is perhaps a slight stretch. A traditional way to cheer on a road cyclist is to ring a cowbell. Similar reasoning. Bicycle races take place on rural roads where the only unnatural sound may be that of cattle as they go about the business of being cattle. I believe the chainsaw represents the newer, more extreme sport of downhill racing. Thought this was an interesting little side note to the use of chainsaws. Thanks for the quirky and interesting topics that you cover. Regards, Chris. Well, that sounds completely made up. I don't know <laughs> if I believe any of that. That, uh, But it's so weird, I guess it has to be true. Uh, yeah, I, I wonder. Well, now I'm wondering if I should have checked this beforehand. Uh, you know what, Chris? If you were lying to us and I determine afterwards, I'm going to cut this whole message out of the episode. <laughs> but I, I was wondering if, okay, could chainsaws be so that the uh, the downhill mountain biking person can hear you through a through a helmet they've got on that would like cover up their ears and muffle normal applause and cheers? I guess so. Uh, I could see that being the case. You know, they're muffled. They're going fast. Uh, you can't just yell, hey, way to go. <laughs> Race that downhill. You know, you need maybe something louder. And it's either this or air horns. And I guess the air horn could be more startling, whereas the well, a chainsaw could be startling, too, I guess, if you're just suddenly revving it up. But more of it, <laughs> I guess, if it's just constantly going, then maybe it's like a nice ambient roar when they rush by. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, something about it seems vaguely threatening. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, Chris, thanks for getting in touch. All right. So that was a bit of, of Halloween listener mail, and it's okay if those continue to, to roll in. We'll continue to read them. Uh, but we also begin to hear from folks in regard to our Dune episodes. Uh, so uh, basically, we put out you know two new Science of Dune episodes, and this, uh, this bit of listener mail comes to us from C. Hey guys, not normally one to write into podcasts, uh, first time actually, but I just finished your new episode on the Bene Gesserit. Like yourselves, I am a pretty big fan of Dune. It is my default favorite book in any sort of favorite book discussions. I give both Dune and Dune Messiah a read through every couple of years. Anyway, to the point. I was really thinking deeply about the box while watching some late night peanut butter brownies finish baking in the oven, and a curious thing struck me. I am one that leans towards the box not being a secret technology, but some parlor trick of the Reverend Mother. 
As I was listening to you guys discuss the box and Paul's uh, later anecdote about not falling for tricks again, it made me wonder if he would have felt anything at all if he hadn't asked what was in the box. After all, the Bene Gesserit have command of the voice, and so I wonder if the Reverend Mother telling Paul what to expect in the box, maybe that was enough. I think maybe the Reverend Mother planted that in his mind, maybe with the voice, and then Paul's mind created that very pain that tortured him. So maybe the box is just simply that, a box. Anyway, thank you guys for the years of podcasting excellence, and I look forward to many more. Cheers. See. Yeah, I, you know, I, I pretty much suspect this is what Herbert had in mind, that actually the box itself doesn't do anything, and it is the Reverend Mother who is the, uh, who is the active principal who is causing the, uh, the sensations of pain that Paul is feeling. Yeah, I, I too think that's probably more in line with uh, with the way he seems to operate, and uh, certainly the way that the Reverend Mothers seem to operate. It's a, it's kind of it's like a distraction to a certain extent, and it's a a method of 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 tweaking our perception of things. Um, mm. But I wonder what would happen if if she had said something other than pain. Like, what if she had said, "It's filled with uh, like what's in the pa- what's in the box," and uh, and she says, "Well, uh, it's eyeballs." It's It's a witch's uh, hair from a witch who once lived in this house. Now it's the intestines of a murderer. Yeah, that would have that that would have been interesting. Have you ever done one of those Halloween parties? The 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 feel the feel the ickies. I remember it as a child. I remember going to some sort of uh, you know I don't know it was like an Elks Club Halloween or something. I don't know, (laughs) and uh, and somebody had that set up, and I remember thinking it was pretty neat. Uh huh. Because you had you had the spaghetti for guts, I think, and then skinned grapes, particularly skinned grapes for uh, for eyeballs. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I can't remember what those are the two big ones. I was like, yeah, these are gross. I guess another way of framing it is uh, you could say that if if the Reverend Mother is just doing something, you know, psychologically manipulative to Paul with her own voice and stuff, that the box could be considered misdirection. You know, the classic uh, mm-hmm. uh, it, one of the most common tricks used by stage magicians is misdirection, in that like they will draw your attention to an object or to what they're doing with one of their hands or something. You know, the whole point is to get you to look at this thing while the real trick is happening somewhere else in their other hand or something. Now there's nothing really presented as far as I know to doubt the, 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 um, the idea that the needle, that the Gamjabar itself has, has poison at the tip of it. Uh, but I mean, if, if the box doesn't really have pain in it, if the box is just a box, is it possible that the Gamjabar is just a needle? And that if she has to poke you with it, you're just going to get poked with a needle. You're not actually going to die. Or is it a similar situation where if you draw your hand out, you're going to believe you're going to die when you're mm-hmm. uh, when you're spiked with that uh, Gamjabar needle, poison or no poison? Like you don't need the metacyanide. It's like the Matrix. Your mind makes it real. Yeah. Whoa, dude. Yeah, that, that's Dune. That's how the, the Dune works on you. All right, what else do we have, Joe? All right, this next message is also in response to the Dune episodes. This comes from E.K. E.K. says, Robert and Joe, I've enjoyed your podcast for quite a while. As a psychiatrist, artist, and D&D enthusiast, there are a number of topics you cover that cross over with my professional and personal interests. 
Your latest episode and the discussion on pain and the psychological input certainly touched on a topic that I frequently discuss with my patients. You mentioned hypnosis briefly, and although I do not practice it myself, during my training I've seen video documentation of patients undergoing surgery under hypnosis instead of anesthetics, including a cesarean section. This is a profound reduction in pain rather than a moderate effect size, although of course hypnosis is really only an option for a select population. Uh, this is what we were talking about in the episode that, uh, while it does seem like hypnosis is pretty efficacious for people who are susceptible to it, not everybody is susceptible to it. Uh, but EK goes on. That said, I think we all have experience of not noticing an injury and feeling pain only when we notice the scrape or blister later. In my work with individuals with anxiety and depression, I've found that people in a negative state of mind often experience worse pain. In the same way, the brain gives more value to negative thoughts and words of discouragement when depressed. The brain also pays more attention to negative physical inputs like pain. Thus, I find that treating depression and anxiety often improves physical pain as well, even if it does not take away the physical ailment that causes it. I believe there was also a World War II physician who found that service members wounded in the battlefield often needed less morphine than civilians who had similar gunshot wounds. The theory is that the soldier's injury meant going home and returning as a hero, and thus had a different meaning than, for example, a shopkeeper who was wounded in a robbery and had only loss as a result. In psychiatry, of course, we deal with how the meaning of things affects perceptions and experiences, and this is definitely Definitely true when it comes to pain. Keep up the good work. Enjoy the podcast, EK. Yeah, I feel like we've discussed the um, the scenario with the the World War II physician. Um, Have yeah, we? I believe, believe this is coming. I think so. Either in some of our past episodes on perceptions of pain, or perhaps uh, placebo. Hmm. Okay. I guess that didn't stick in my brain for some reason. Maybe I'll. I mean, or, or it could be possible that I assembled it, you know, wholesale in my own brain. I could be misremembering, <laughs> but it rings a bell or a chainsaw. <laughs> uh, well, EK, thank you very much for uh, sharing your insight from clinical experience. Uh, always great to hear from from people uh, working in a professional capacity in the subjects we cover. All right, here is one from Zach. Uh, this is in response to uh, our episode on the Leshy. Uh, this was put out as a vault episode, but it was one of our favorite uh, Halloween episodes from the previous year. Zach writes, hi. In the recent vault episode, Joe was listing the subtle ways in which a Leshy might have a subtle detail wrong with it, enabling the hero of the folktale to realize that they're encountering a Leshy. I think this has come up before in your episodes about Incubi and Succubi. I think you guys mentioned how Christian authors interpreted this feature of monsters as being imposed by God to provide righteous Christians with the opportunity to realize they were being tempted by an evil monster. This reminds me of how scam emails or texts will always have crazy misspellings or bad grammar. If you're a scammer sending phishing emails to people, it's as if no matter how well written the email is, God will alter the text of the email <laughs> in transit to insert misspellings and give the recipients an opportunity to realize they are being scammed. Thank you, God, for protecting me from modern-day leshies. Zach. <laughs> It's, it's strange how often uh, this is true, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the thing that we discussed in, in that, I think it's come up a few times before, is, yeah, this this medieval, uh, uh, I don't know, it was late medieval and kind of post-medieval concept as well, that these demons could take human form um, in order to deceive people and uh, and make them give into their sins. But God being just would not allow the devil and his minions uh, to have a complete advantage over the righteous. And so there would always be that telltale sign such as uh, duck feet on an otherwise, uh, you know, attractive uh, female form, that sort of thing. And so as long as you looked for the duck feet, uh, acknowledged the duck feet, and then corrected your course, uh, you know, appropriately, you'd be all right. Uh, So (laughs) I do like this comparison. I mean, uh, certainly you can't rely on this absolutely, but it's one of those things they frequently teach you. Uh, I know we're always getting uh, warnings at work about how to look out for phishing emails, and that's one of the things. They're like, look for the errors, look for the duck feet. Uh, but I, I do want to reemphasize what you said, Rob. You know, it shouldn't be your only fail-safe because, hey, some scammers must have really good grammar. It's just the law of large numbers. <laughs> All right, maybe we should finish up with uh, with a message or two about Weird House Cinema. This one comes from Greg. Greg says, Hi, gentlemen. You mentioned during this week's Weird House Cinema episode, which was Highway to Hell, that you couldn't recall a sofa-slash-easy-chair horror film. Uh, I think the context was I, I was saying, you know, there's like a there's a horror movie for every type of media technology. Uh, there's like the ring where you watch a videotape and then it kills you. There's uh, there's fear dot com where you go to a website and it kills you. There is uh, and those came out, I think, right around the same time and were extremely similar movies, by the way. There was another one called nine, seven, six evil we were talking about, which I've never seen. Mm-hmm. But it allegedly is about a phone number you call and it kills you. But I was like, well, surely nobody ever made a movie where there's a reclining chair and you sit in it and it kills you. But apparently I was wrong. Uh, Greg says, look no further than killer sofa 2019 from the fine folks at high octane pictures. This New Zealand horror comedy was most recently available on Amazon prime alongside sure to be classics like Velocipaster, in which a priest transforms into a Velociraptor. Uh, at least give the killer sofa trailer a look. The image of a recliner evilly uh, peering out of a second floor window says it all. Thanks, Greg. You know, Greg, I got to be honest. I did not have high hopes for this. <laughs> I went and looked at because I mean, movies like this, a lot of times they when you're trying this hard to, to make a, a silly or, or bad movie on purpose, you know, th- this level of irony from the, the conceptual origins, it, it just doesn't usually work in, in its final form. I don't know why, but most of the time it's, it's not as fun as the concept would seem, but I gotta say, I watched the trailer for this and it, it looks dope. I'm sold. Uh, I, <laughs> it's got this, these great shots of like menacing springs poking out into the, into the frame. And there's something quite infectious about the way the characters in the trailer just keep saying the word recliner over and over and not switching out for synonyms like chair. <laughs> Yeah, this is, I think in that episode, um, I said that I th- I thought that I had seen some sort of a killer couch uh, or, or whatever uh, movie, not seen it, but seen a poster for it. And I believe this is the one. This must have come okay. up for me in Amazon or something. Rob, um, you, you have my sincere apology for, for not heeding you. <laughs> um, now, as, as far as I understand, this is not a part of like the, the full moon universe. So... 
I don't think we can currently have Killer Sofa battle um, like Killer Bong or anything like that, uh, which is uh, which is a shame. It seems like this creation would fit well in that universe. Oh, within Bandcamp. Yeah, I've not seen Killer Bong either. But that to me again, <laughs> there are tons can't of can't pre. <laughs> don't want to prejudge. I haven't seen it, but that sounds like the kind of movie I was talking about that usually doesn't doesn't really do it for me. Yeah, yeah. All right, and here's one more. This one comes to us from Mike. Mike says, hey, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) He's got beef with me, apparently. To start, I've been enjoying this podcast for the last five years and playing older episodes in between your new ones, catching up constantly. I'm a fan of horror, slasher, films of the 70s and 80s. On multiple occasions, I've heard you state that Jason Voorhees essentially becomes a revenant after the seventh god-awful film. Here's my gripe, though. Isn't Jason a behemoth revenant from the beginning, first film? He drowned at Crystal Lake and died. He is the uncaring, unfeeling, unstoppable, monolithic beast from the start. Any thoughts? Mike. Well, Mike, I I appreciate all the aggression. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, No, I think you're wrong. Uh, so I will admit that the, the early films are not quite consistent on this point. Uh, so yeah, in the first Friday, the 13th movie, the premise is that Jason died. And, uh, and of course it is revealed that it's his mother who is doing the killings that are, that are being blamed on him. But, uh, my, my basic understanding was that this is just sort of ignored and retconned in the second film where Jason does show up. I think just because the first one was successful, they wanted to make another one. They thought it would make money. They're like, okay, well, uh, Mrs. Voorhees got her head cut off at the, uh, end of the first film. So we can't really use her again. Well, what if we just say that like Jason wasn't actually dead? He was alive. Uh, so that's what we got, Jason. It turns out is alive. He is a a psychotic killer, adult man in the second movie, and uh, then again in the third movie, then again in the fourth movie. Uh, in the fourth movie, Corey Feldman whacks him in the head with a machete, and he is no more. The fifth movie features a copycat, and yes, it is the sixth film. I think you got the order a little off because you were saying the seventh. It's the sixth film where finally they're just like ah to hell with it. Okay, he's he's undead. It's magic now. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I think it's, it was a smart move on their part. Good choice. Yeah. Like I say, there's a progression there. Um, I, 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 I haven't, like I say, for me, most of them are kind of a blur and they kind of blur together because I was probably watching them on, you know, USA or TNT back in, back in the day. And I would catch like parts of one late at night and, uh, in isolation like that, they can seem much the same. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, uh, I, I trust your, your judgment on this. They are much the same. Uh, they, they have extremely similar structures across most of them. Now, here's the question. Has he remained a revenant since then? Or have the newer films kind of uh, gone back and made him human again? Uh, there was a remake film in about 2009 or so, which I have not seen since I saw it in the theater then. But my my memory is that he is a regular human in that one. I guess we could all, if there's any, if there are any films that come out subsequently... Uh, that we're not fond of. We can always say that they were just a holodeck uh, simulation aboard the uh, the starship Grindle from uh, Jason uh, Jason X. Yes, uh, I, I got to <laughs> say that actually Jason X is it has one of the most inspired moments of the entire series, which is which is when the characters distract Jason by putting him in the holodeck and supplying him <laughs> with fake holographic victims. Yes, 
it's kind of a perfect solution, right? Because then, like, he's not actually hurting anybody. And, of course, you know, you can't stop him because he's unkillable. But you just, like, let him busy himself playing video games for the rest of eternity. I should. I need to go back and watch it at some point because this raises the question, like, how they get him? How did he ever escape from the holodeck? Couldn't they have just programmed in infinite victims and then uh, he'd be happy in this simulated world? I think the problem was that the holodeck broke or ran out of uh, power or something. Okay. Because otherwise, it, it seems like it could be a good fit. Though, on the other hand, the other side of looking at it is, are, are, don't ethical concerns arise if we are creating this endless simulation where there are endless victims for Jason to dispatch? Um, uh, we, I think we get into uh, murky territory pretty quickly with that. What, like you're worried, is it not fair to do this to Jason? <laughs> well, I'm not not really concerned about Jason. I'm thinking about the simulation. Like, what are they? What are these simulations? Oh, are these conscious holographic victims? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not sure how I, I feel about that. Uh, or, that... <laughs> would he eventually get it out of his system? Maybe he reached the point where he's like, killing brings me no joy anymore. Now Jason becomes a creator. Yeah, he becomes, yeah, okay. He, now he's a peaceful artist because uh, <laughs> he, he saw the error of his ways. Oh, man, that, that would actually, I think that would work as a sequel. It would be kind of like The Creature Walks Among Us, where Jason is changed, he goes out into the world, and he's uh, this artist or something. He makes pottery. Uh, but of course, he makes pottery. But uh, eventually, he's going to backslide, and there's your movie. He backslides because of rude gawkers at the crafts fair who come by the tent but never buy anything. <laughs> well, he should have had some postcards. Most people will buy a postcard. All right, now that we have that settled, uh, let's, uh, I guess we'll go ahead and close it out for today. But we appreciate everyone who wrote in. Um, as we, we often stress, we don't, we don't have time to respond to everybody via email. Uh, we, we do try and read everything that comes in, and, and we do get to feature a lot of listener mail um, on the listener mail segments. But, uh, yeah, keep it coming. If you have response to past episodes, um, hopes and desires for future episodes, let us know. We would love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you'd like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, core episodes on Tuesday and Thursdays, more listener mails every Monday, artifact episodes on Wednesday, and on Fridays we do a little Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.